It's time to be all that you can be in 23, starting with a cold plunge to get a natural boost in energy. Focus, discipline, and resilience. The plunge can provide you with all that brilliance. This is the ultimate home cold water therapy experience. A sleek, slick, custom-designed unit that gives you ready access to a cold bath of clean, filtered, circulating water that you can set to your desired temperature. Don't fool around lugging bags of ice from the supermarket for once-in-a-while action. Get the plunge so you will actually stick with your protocol and enjoy it. Visit at thecoldplunge.com to learn all about this sensational product and the benefits of therapeutic cold water exposure. They'll deliver a plunge to your home for free, and then you have easy, simple setup, regular plug-in, and you're off and running. I set mine to 39. I don't spend a lot of time, but the experience is prime, and I'm focused and energized for a fantastic day and more resilient against all other forms of stress in life. Take the plunge, people, and also check out their new Rebounder mini trampoline to pair with plunging and optimize lymphatic function. It's all at thecoldplunge.com, and you can't lose with their generous 30-day money-back guarantee and special discount for BRAD podcast listeners using the code BRAD, thecoldplunge.com. Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Prime Endurance Podcast, Q&A show. It's every night, another city, different time zone. All I want to do is get my shine on. Come and deal with Iggy, get your mind blown. New coop, new roof, got the mind gone. Shitting on you even when I play polite. These are Saint Laurent sneakers, I'm not wearing Nikes. I've seen it all, seen it all twice. No, I gotta get the money early morning, late nights. Pull up in the S-Class, leave in the Wraith. Murder mommy in designer, know that murder be the case. Tell them hating, go and sim it down. I'ma get the paper about as quick as word get around. Posters of me on the wall in your hubby house. What you getting? I've been having. I don't want it now. For a specialist rapping, I'm the one who run it now. Walkthroughs cost a hundred thousand. Young Iggy Al. Everything that we and that's the show. Thank you for listening. Oh, no. How about we get into some questions from real live endurance athletes doing their best, fighting the battle out there on the roads and the trails, in the water, trying to adhere to the refined principles of the primal endurance approach, the maximum aerobic function emphasis and training, monitoring your stress levels while you pursue ambitious endurance goals without destroying your health. Here we go. First one is from Arnie. Hey, Brad, love your podcast. This is more of a comment. I'm 58-year-old exercise physiologist. I've been fat adapted since January 16. I've been strictly math since July of 16. Um, so now we're coming on year and a half, huh? I completed my second Javelina 100-mile trail run and was able to shave four hours off my time. I can't say it's all aerobic training and fat adaptation, but I know that uh, some raised eyebrows are happening because I tell people how little I run compared to walking because he's trying to keep his heart rate under control. Just tell your listeners that if this 58-year-old can do it, they can do it as well. Be patient, and thanks for what you do. All right, Arnie, thanks. Uh, The next one 
is a question about aerobic training and losing my fight or flight response when needed. Oh my gosh, I love these uh, these tee-ups for me so I can go off. When I'm training mostly in my aerobic base zone, will I lose my fight or flight response when I need it, such as when I need to go all out during a competition event and bust my heart out of the 75% zone for, let's say, 10 to 15 minutes of, of high activity? How often do I really need to eat carbs to make sure I'm glycogen repleted for when the high demand for glycogen raises during such a competitive event? Or can I survive as just using fat and protein as fuel? I know that protein does not get converted into glycogen if needed. And in that situation, I might be better off having some carbs to get it available in a faster manner rather than relying on gluconeogenesis. Wow, what a complex, interesting uh, series of questions. The first one, I will strongly and emphatically say that you do not need to practice your fight or flight response. Um, it is just as described. It's a hardwired genetic mechanism when we have a fight or flight stimulus in our environment. Um, our body perceives this, our brain and body perceive this to be a matter of life or death. So a traffic jam, uh, calling up to uh, give a, a, a speech in public, uh, getting onto the starting line and getting those butterflies and the adrenaline going. Every time you feel that butterfly stomach, that adrenaline response, that's basically the fight or flight hormones kicking in and helping you function at a heightened level of not only physical function, but cognitive function. So you get increase in respiration, heart rate, blood pressure, uh, you're sharper, you're ready, you're on edge, and you're ready to fight for your life, basically. Just because it's a local 10K or a trail run, um, your brain doesn't know the difference between that and uh, chasing uh, animal chasing you uh, as in the primal example. So we absolutely do not need to practice and hone this. This will always be there for everyone. I often use this analogy when I'm talking to a live audience where uh, I go up to someone, maybe someone who's not paying attention, looking at their phone or something. So I use them as the example. And I said, you know what? Um, if I go and put a gun to your head right now and say, we're going to run a marathon in under five hours, guess what? You're going to do it. No matter what kind of shape you're in, um, you might have a long recovery time at the finish line. We might be taking you straight to the hospital, whatever, but you will always be able to summon a superhuman performance uh, when there's a gun to your head, okay? So that's the concept that we want to keep uh, near and dear to our hearts, that we do not need to... Um, anything we do along those lines, if we think that we need to hone that fight-or-flight response... That's basically our ego talking and our insecurities talking and thinking that um, you're going to lose some type of competitive edge if you don't uh, hone it three to four to five times a week. And that's the kind of mindset we really want to get away from. These comments are completely independent of any commentary on what's the best approach to training and when do you introduce uh, high-intensity workouts into the program. Uh, if you listen to the Dave Scott show on this channel, go back and listen if you hadn't. Uh, incredible uh, wealth of knowledge and perspective and experience as an athlete and a coach and uh, deep into the science and physiology. And Dave said there are an assortment of benefits uh, from blowing out the cardiovascular system once in a while, flooring it for a short duration, maybe for a minute here and a minute there uh, during a endurance training session. So short enough that it's not going to fatigue you like a time trial or an interval workout, but delivering these benefits with uh, oxygen exchange, stroke volume, just improving your cardiovascular function by working the top end once in a while. 
um, it's short enough that it's not going to elicit a profound fight or flight response where the hormones are circulating in your bloodstream for a long duration afterwards. So uh, different different discussion there, but um, there's absolutely no uh, justification for honing the fight or flight response. If your neighbor's being a jerk, uh, you don't have to argue with them three times a week to prepare for that ultimate argument where you're going to uh, have a fight and a lawsuit about uh, who's responsible for the broken fence. So anyway, that's the first part of the the question. And this gets into a longer discussion I had with Dr. Phil Maffetone on the Primal Endurance Mastery Course series of videos. You should watch all six or seven or whatever we chopped up uh, the long day I spent with him in the Arizona desert talking through all manner of endurance training. It's worth the price of admission for the course just for uh, the discussions I had with him. Um, but he echoed the same thing, that uh, the anaerobic muscle fibers, the fast-twitch muscle fibers that are um, not using oxygen to uh, perform their explosive short-duration effort, they don't require a high volume of training. You don't need to train a sprinter with a high volume of uh, you know, long-duration workouts day after day after day. These muscles are designed for explosive short-term use. You train them in... Uh, a brief high-intensity training session, and you don't need to do it uh, for days after in that example. So the anaerobic muscle fibers do not require extensive training. The brain does not require extensive training. The brain knows how to go hard. The brain knows how to kick into fight-or-flight response. And so then what we're left with is to develop the aerobic system, which does respond to uh, high-volume training as long as it's uh, protective of health and not uh, you, you can get overstressed by doing too much volume as well. Um, but uh, even when you're doing low-intensity aerobic training, as Dr. Maffetone explained, um, these muscle fibers that are oxygenated, the slow twitch, are intertwined with the fast twitch muscle fibers. So when you train your oxygenating uh, muscle fibers, you are supporting the uh, transfer of energy and the removal of waste products from the explosive high-intensity muscle fibers. That's why jogging really slowly does indeed help improve your time in the 800 meters or the 1500 meters or the 5K. So the base building uh, has a direct application to improvement in high-intensity athletic performance because it's uh, nourishing those fast-twitch muscle fibers uh, indirectly through high-functioning, slow-twitch muscle fibers intertwined. And I'm kind of rambling about the brain aspect of it, but I'm hoping that you get this concept that when you get onto a starting line from the time you were six years old uh, and for the rest of your life, you're going to elicit that fight or flight response automatically from the outside stimulus in your environment. You don't need to hone it. Uh, I've beaten that one uh, hard enough that no one will ever ask it again, huh? Oh, and then talking about um, how many carbs do I need to consume so that I'll have the, the sufficient glycogen uh, when these high-demand uh, occasions come during the, during the competition. Um, the FASTER study is a great resource for that, showing that when you're a fat-adapted endurance athlete, you can replenish glycogen without even consuming an uh, appreciable amount of carbohydrates uh, after a depleting workout. And as the hardcore people know, the FASTER study athletes, it was two groups of endurance, ultra-endurance runners high-performing, elite-level ultra-endurance runners. Uh, one group was uh, following the high-fat, low-carbohydrate, uh, ancestral-style eating pattern. The other group was more of a conventional, high-carbohydrate eating pattern. And they replenished glycogen at a similar rate, even though 
um, the the high fat folks uh, don't consume any carbs and didn't consume any carbs even after a three hour depleting run on the treadmill. They depleted glycogen purposely on this three hour run. That was the centerpiece of the study. So it was a fascinating insight to uh, reveal uh, just how good the body is at replenishing glycogen from uh, internal uh, mechanisms like um, the byproduct of uh, fat metabolism, making some uh, glycerol molecules to uh, spin off from the uh, oxidation of fat. Uh, Also, um, the delicate process of gluconeogenesis where you're taking some perhaps ingested amino acids and converting them into glucose for use as energy when um, you need it, oftentimes in an emergency situation, but also in a graceful general metabolic situation if you're fat adapted and you need to just remember we're always trying to balance our blood glucose at a volume of around five grams, that's one teaspoon, in the entire circulating blood volume of the body, which is Um, what is it, seven or eight liters. It's a lot of blood running around and only a tiny droplet of glucose is your optimal blood sugar. And if you're even a little bit off, you're going to feel horrible symptoms um, and you're going to be in in bad shape if you bonk or if you get into hyperglycemic like a diabetic. So the body is magnificent, does a magnificent job. The liver, the control tower for all this uh, energy uh, uh, manufacturing and distribution into the bloodstream. Uh, regulates everything really, really well. So even if you're uh, on a low-carb eating pattern and you go out and burn up a bunch of carbs, your body's probably going to do okay uh, in the short term. Now, looking at long-term, and I did entire shows on this, uh, Dr. Tommy Wood's show. I also narrated a show on the topic of um, optimal level of carb intake depending on your goals and your metabolic uh, particulars. And over the long-term, Uh, If you're someone who's trying to reduce excess body fat, you have a different set of decision-making steps as compared to someone who is trying for peak performance, who has already optimal body fat, who has good blood values, uh, no history of metabolic damage, things like that. Um, The carb intake might be a little more, uh, increase a little more for someone who's in that athletic category already showing good metabolic fitness, uh, but the most direct path to Uh, handling that frustrating problem of reducing excess body fat is to uh, reduce the intake of carbohydrates, reduce insulin production in the diet, and kick into uh, being fat-adapted, being a fat-burning beast where fat is your preferred fuel source around the clock. So getting rid, especially of all the processed carbs, is the first uh, first and foremost importance. And then down the road sometime, we can talk about experimenting with different levels of carbohydrate intake, different levels of caloric intake, uh, as that was discussed by Dr. Tommy in my own example, where uh, I'm now in an experimental phase of consuming uh, significantly more total calories than I had in previous periods, such as uh, my ketogenic period, and seeing how I respond with my workouts, um, body composition, all those things. So uh, there's a lot of individuality. You hear that all the time on shows and in, in writing. And it's true, but I don't want to get away from the idea that uh, these big picture health aspects uh, must be addressed first and foremost. And so there's never any justification for consuming uh, refined processed carbohydrates, no matter who you are. Even if you're a lean, mean, ripped up machine with the six pack that's whack and everybody says, well, look at that guy, he's jacked. Even if you're uh, that person, the consumption of these uh, uh, inflammation-promoting 
uh, oxidative damage-promoting foods, especially for an athlete, you have less um, leeway than someone who is not asking a lot of their body in peak performance. So um, it's just, even, even though the furnace is hot and it's burning everything you put in and not in that excess body fat storage mode, it's still extremely destructive to your health and recovery and you're trying to be an athlete and have your body function at maximum performance. So there's really never any necessary call for uh, extra carbohydrate calories that don't provide a lot of nutrition. But if we're talking about varying the intake of high nutrient value carbohydrates, that's a different story, a lot of nuance there. But first, let's get off the excess body fat before we talk about uh, tweaking those things. But answering those questions, I think a lot of listeners can answer those for themselves. Uh, of course, we're not burning up protein because uh, we'd be emaciated after like four workouts. So um, that's the the last choice. Um, in emergency situations, we're going to strip down lean muscle mass and convert it into glucose for energy uh, if we're you know starving and not fat adapted. But nothing to worry about for the average person. And in general, um, uh, Chris Craster talks about this in, in length, and it's been mentioned in many of the shows here. Um, we're really, really good at naturally optimizing protein intake just with appetite and cravings and honoring those things. Um, the consensus, especially as we conveyed it in the Keto Reset Diet after doing a lot of research and asking uh, different people, the consensus is consuming around 0.7 grams per pound of lean body mass per day on average in protein. And it happens that it's really easy to get to that level. Even if you're a, um, a, a keto or a, a primal paleo eater, or even if you're a standard American diet, high carb eater, you're still going to get that amount of protein from a general sensible, sensible diet, nothing uh, crazy or restrictive like your seven-day brown rice cleansing diet. You're probably not going to get enough protein, so don't mess with that stuff. Uh, but it's not a whole lot to worry about because if you under-consume protein, uh, you're going to find out really quickly that you start feeling like crap. You'll even maybe notice a reduction in lean muscle mass and you'll be tired and sluggish and all these bad things, and you'll be craving uh, all manner of protein that uh, comes across your mind or your, uh, your line of sight. Okay, so uh, forget that danger. It, only in extreme cases where people are doing stupid diets and suffering and struggling. Uh, now, the concept of over-consuming protein seems to be a little more common because people have been uh, conditioned, socialized into thinking that these high-protein diets are effective and they're going out of their way to consume extra protein, uh, taking extra scoops of the protein powder while consuming uh, high-protein or emphasizing protein in the diet. Uh, people that cut carbs that are still fat-phobic are going to default to uh, a diet that's uh, got a lot, uh, a lot of protein more than they need because they need the calories and they're uh, swearing off carbs and uh, kind of shying away from fat. And so when you get into this excess protein consumption pattern, uh, what's going to happen is, first of all, your body's going to work hard to excrete it, so you're going to stress the liver and the kidneys. Um, you might be converting some of that protein into glucose if you're not fat adapted and you're cutting carbs uh, rashly in an unprepared manner. You're going to make the carbs you need from your excess protein ingestion. And finally, you're going to overstimulate the growth factors such as insulin growth factor, IGF-1, and also mTOR. And these are uh, things that stimulate 
um, anabolic uh, state. So they're helping your uh, muscles recover from stress and exercise, uh, helping them grow bigger or maintaining that lean muscle mass. But when you overstimulate these growth factors and get into that uh, pattern of overstimulating, of overfeeding, what you're doing is you're accelerating cell division, which is the essence of accelerated aging. Um, not a optimal goal for almost everyone. Now, certain people in certain phases of their life are going to be just fine overstimulating these growth factors, perhaps overstimulating uh, insulin because insulin has anabolic properties. It's bringing nutrients into your muscles to recover and grow them stronger. So if there's a bodybuilder looking to get bigger, anyone looking to add muscle size, uh, a, a growing teen trying to reach their full height and perhaps put on some muscle to try out for the football team, which is a terrible idea, but maybe putting some muscle on for the basketball team where no one's trying to bash your brain is a better idea. Um, a pregnant or nursing mother, people in the growth, the distinct growth phases of life uh, can benefit from you know, sufficient feeding, perhaps even overfeeding, and getting those growth factors going. The rest of us who are focused on longevity, health, we want to eat the optimal amount of protein and never any excess. Make sense? I know we're fast moving here. We're hitting a lot of questions, but since you've listened to so many shows, I want to get into it a little deep and um, challenge you a little bit. So maybe take me off 1.5 speed and put me on 1.0 speed because 1.5 speed might be things going over to over your head, three around, around. And now we're here back with the next question. Oh, okay. Um, you know what? That is one of the lamer questions I've ever read. So I'm not going to read it. Sorry, listeners. Um, but I will try to extract a, a message and a teaching moment here. Um, this question is getting a little bit too deep into the weeds and um, making uh, grand proclamations about how performance is affected by nuanced nutritional practices, such as taking uh, an agent an hour before your workout uh, and noticing more, um, uh, uh, less performance in the muscles and so on and so forth. And I, I'm going to answer all such questions uh, with the big picture philosophical insight that when you're healthy, when you're taking care of your stress and rest patterns, when you're getting adequate sleep, when you're eating a nutrient-dense diet rather than nutrient-deficient diet full of uh, sugars and grains and, and reward foods because you're burning so many calories during workouts but not nourishing yourself, uh, when you're doing everything right, uh, you're going to get the most out of your body uh, on most occasions. Most every training session should go pretty well. Um, you don't want to be in a constant mode of muscle soreness and tightness and stiffness and uh, feeling sluggish, feeling unmotivated. And when you get into this chronic pattern of training where you're making assorted mistakes and uh, burning the candle at both ends and doing all that, that's when I suspect you're going to uh, come up with all these weird insights that you'll then go and write down and take the time to write an email and send it to someone like me to ridicule it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've noticed my lower back tightens up between mile 13 and 18 when the temperature is under 60 degrees. But when it's 65 or over, uh, I, my back's good until mile 30. And I'm going to answer by saying that if your back tightens up during sessions, uh, you have some issues you want to work on, which mostly it's chronic training patterns, maybe insufficient sleep. Uh, you know, you're in an inflammation pattern because of all the sugar and grains you eat in your diet, and your weak spots are going to reveal themselves after pedaling the bicycle for a while and noticing that your muscles are breaking down because they're not well nourished, uh, not well rested. Stuff like that, just passing up the, um, the nitty gritty 
and looking for big picture insights and how to uh, how to get those dialed in so we don't have these weird, strange, uh, minor questions. <laughs> okay, anyway, here's an issue from Paul. Uh, I'm walking slowly. My heart rate's 30 points above math. From 132 is my math. I'm hitting 165. Um, but I'm actually in good shape, so don't, don't give me that answer. <laughs> um, I exercise a little bit every day. I can do push-ups. I can do this and that. I haven't done chronic cardio. I'm doing martial arts. Um, I eat a clean, paleo-based diet. I sleep seven to eight hours per night. Why can't I even walk a mile uh, with a, and, and get my heart rate uh, below 160? I'm proving it with a screenshot of my walk, and Lindsay answered this directly uh, asking him an assortment of follow-up questions. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's uh, monitor error, like pilot error, like your monitor's old and not working very well, and so your heart rate really isn't that high. And sometimes you're um, a very rare anomaly who falls outside of the calculations. Um, but I, I, I sometimes feel like um, we're going to go toward more of the obvious stuff like monitor error or... Um, you know, someone's in a high stress period of life and uh, the heart rate's jacking up just from a basic workout uh, just because you're uh, not uh, rested and prepared to uh, engage in any kind of exercise until uh, you get your, uh, you're completely clear of the most recent illness or you sleep more uh, and just regulate that uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. You've heard some shows about heart rate variability a uh, hot topic these days in the endurance scene. And I got way into this for about two and a half or three years. I measured my heart rate variability every single day, and I found it to be a useful tool to kind of uh, predict or reveal uh, where I was on the spectrum of um, recovered uh, to stressed and sometimes uh, foretelling the future, which I think is the best use of heart rate variability, where you might wake up and feel great, and it's because you're bathed in the group of endorphin-like agents in your bloodstream that uh, serve as painkillers and uh, give you a sense of euphoria and mask the eventual fatigue that you'll experience when you come down off your uh, fight-or-flight hormone-based high. And so I discovered that uh, many times in my career as a professional when I was training really, really hard and going into these uh, major blocks of training where I'd just get up every single day and I'd feel great and I'd go all day and I'd go hard sometimes and I'd come back and I was just kind of buzzed and excited and I enjoyed the exercise and I enjoyed making progress and turning in these fantastic workouts. Couldn't wait to get up and do it again the next day. The big race is coming in seven weeks. If I can just do this for four or five more weeks, I'll be in world beating shape. And what would happen would be I would continue on this high, this artificial, uh, chemically induced high where I did not feel soreness. I did not feel fatigue. I did not feel pain. I was just on, you know, all cylinders cranking every single day. But what happened was my um, hormonal system, you know, would finally become exhausted and start underproducing, going under normal level of hormone production. And I'd crash and burn in an abrupt and dramatic manner that was highly disturbing. I'd shake my head and go, what did I do wrong? I, I trained how I felt every day, uh, you know, and what happened was I felt great and I just um, didn't use the uh, higher level reasoning skills that I possess as a human to take a step back and go, wow, dude, you've been grinding for six weeks straight 
every single week has been very impressive. It's been above your historical norm of total training volume and intensity and filled with PRs uh, and competitive intensity and all these, uh, you know, uh, focused mindset. Uh, you, you've been in the zone. Um, but if you sit back and reason with it a bit, you can't stay in the zone forever, right? So you would make a a strategic step to say, well, I've banked a ton of good training hours. I've really improved my fitness over the past uh, block of six weeks or however long I've been going. Now I'm going to uh, pull the plug and do a purposeful rest period because I deserve it, because I know that it's a good way to absorb training, not because I'm tired and cranky and sore throaty and my knees throbbing, any of those things. Those are going to come later if I don't uh, uh, if I don't pay attention to common sense and the importance of balancing stress and rest, even if you feel great. And there's so many type A performers that uh, use exercise and use endurance goals as a uh, a balance to the other forms of stress in their life, such as uh, the career patterns, the the travel and the intensity of the uh, career environment, the pressure, and then you go out and get to start pedaling your bike and you get away from all that pressure and all that noise in your brain. However, the pedaling of the bicycle is merely another form of stress and it all goes into that same basket, uh, that same side of the scales of justice as all the forms of stress in your life. And the podcast I did about recovery uh, and also the Mark Stanley Apple post where we're highlighting um, that work with Joel Jameson, the podcast I did with Joel as well, where we have this uh, profound insight that we all uh, probably already know, but it's not, we need to dust it off and put it out in front and center, uh, put it on the windowsill. Uh, it is that uh, recovery and restoration require energy in and of themselves. And if you don't devote proper energy to recovery, that's when you're going to get into this recovery debt and it's a nice, uh, clever way to describe uh, what I'm talking about here, where I'm in recovery debt, and I don't even notice it because all I'm doing is performing and devoting all my energy to to exercise, and you're headed for a disaster. So the type A that's juggling career with uh, endurance goals needs to recognize that both those things need to take a back seat sometimes, and Sunday morning is uh, a great day to sleep in, read the paper, order breakfast in bed from your teenage kids or what have you. And boy, that's the athlete that I would fear if I were an opponent, the guy who sleeps in on Sunday morning instead of does yet another uh, long run to, to um, bump up his miles. That's a guy who's got, got it grooving really nicely. It's to have that slice of the pie devoted to uh, recovery and restoration, hobbies, uh, social time, things outside of the grind, grind, grind of the competitive uh, environments that you're immersed in, such as career, such as uh, endurance goals. And I know a lot of the training when you're at Math Heart Rate and you're out there uh, trying out a new trail around the lake and there's a beautiful view uh, and you get to see the ducks flop away, you know, that experience with nature is wonderful. But, um, you know, take a, take a workout and go 20, 30 beats below math instead of writing in asking if you can buy five more beats for some uh, justification that. Um, you know, your, your genetic testing showed that your, your heart's larger than normal. So can you buy five more beats? Um, those truly restorative workouts where they're really slow and comfortable, um, those can be, uh, really bread and butter for continued improvement as an endurance athlete. You just have to, 
put away your fears and misgivings about going slower and realize that these workouts can be uh, partially restorative, but I also believe in uh, time away from exercise is uh, uh, really restorative too, and so you need to uh, respect that as well. Okay, well, that wasn't a ton of questions, and we got into some cool tangents and I think got some deep insights out here. So maybe listen to the show over and absorb some of that stuff because we're we're kind of in advanced category now with our Q&A shows. Thank you so much for listening and sending in the really thoughtful questions uh, to allow me to go off as I enjoy doing and finishing with uh, the rest of All Hands on Deck. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Talk to you soon. Brad Kearns, send your questions to info at primalendurance.fit. And please visit the website because we have some great uh, blog posts up there. We have some great success stories that we continually add to. Love to hear yours and see yours if you can send send in a message of how the Primal Endurance approach has helped your life. And of course, all the details about the Primal Endurance Mastery Courts, which is really everything. Uh, it's our heart and soul that we put into this this whole team here that's uh, built this magnificent uh, learning portal, the most comprehensive course on endurance training ever developed. And the library of videos is just mind-blowing. When you get in there, when you get your sleeves rolled up and, and take this course, um, it is a wonderful journey. You don't have to travel all over North America like I did and lug camera equipment and sit down with these great uh, legends of the sport and medical experts and health experts. Uh, I did it all for you. You get to sit back and watch it on whatever device you want, your pad, your laptop, your mobile even, but tremendous insights from our team of experts. And also uh, my um, face that you're going to get tired of taking you through every single aspect of the book in a uh, in, in video format. So you don't have to sit and read. You can just watch me blab about it and get that a little bit more interactive experience because it's one thing to write about uh, the correct running form and the drills you can do and show little still pictures. Uh, but when you see the video, then you'll start to integrate this stuff into your training and it'll really benefit you to the maximum. Same with all the stuff uh, with the meal preparation and uh, getting stuff into your game just from uh, remembering the video or uh, watching them regularly and keeping on track, keeping motivated because we're all in this together. Thanks for considering that course. Check it out. And if you have any questions, uh, email us and we're here to help you individually, directly. We're committed, man. I hope you are too. Have a good day. Hi, it's Brad Kearns to tell you about Paleo Cooking Bootcamp. Oh, what fun. Finally, you have a chance to learn from a real professional about intentional cooking, where you maximize the efficiency of your time, dedicate two hours on the weekend to cooking, and Chef Katie French, the earthivore, will take you through this incredible whirlwind cooking session where you cook enough in two hours to have ready-made delicious paleo-approved meals for the entire week. 
paleocookingbootcamp.com. This is a digital version of her award-winning course that was given to students live in the Bay Area. And now, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you can have a step-by-step approach that makes it easy to succeed in the kitchen. Even if you're not a big foodie, even if you're a little intimidated about doing recipes, just push the play button and Katie will take you through the cooking course. It's a two-hour boot camp every weekend designed to last for a month and you will be dialed with your paleo meals. Just open up that refrigerator door. Imagine having all these delicious snacks and breakfast items, dinner entrees, dessert treats even. And let me tell you, I was on the set watching this whole production. It is the real deal. The food is absolutely amazing and you will be surprised what you can accomplish in the kitchen with an intentional cooking method. There's no other course like this found in the world. We looked, believe me. So check out paleocookingbootcamp.com and enroll today. 